Our scripture passage tonight comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. These are the words of our Lord. Look, y'all, this is not uh, rocket science that we've been doing in the book of Ephesians this semester. Uh, There are certain events in your life that are so major that you quickly come to realize that you are going to have to reorient everything around that event. Um, If you get married, you will discover very quickly that you cannot just go and do what it is that you want to do at any time you want to do it. (laughs) Um, If you have a family tragedy, let's say you lose a parent or a sibling or someone very near and dear and close to you, you're suddenly going to find that you will be saddled with responsibilities that you otherwise would never have had because of that. I remember the first day that I came home when my wife (laughs) realized that she, um, that the children weren't going home, basically, is what she realized. Uh, We had Anna Grace and Caroline very close together as God's blessing to us. And um, (laughs) I remember walking in, y'all have told this story before, and Anna Grace was still in a diaper at that point. She was walking around just kind of going, la, 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 la. Caroline was in a little rocker there and sort of bawling her eyes out, with this loud sort of thing. The television is on. The house looks like a tornado came through it. And there's there's Ginger sitting on the couch staring at the wall. Now, I'm no psychiatrist. But I walked in and I immediately thought, you know, my wife may be going through something right now. So it was like, honey, you okay? Not a hello, not how are you doing, honey. She looked at me and she goes, I'm trapped. No one is going to deal with these children if I don't. (laughs) In other words, she began to realize that the reality of having a child is so major that everything for the rest of her life was going to have to be reoriented around that great fact. Right? Look, thus far, Paul has been trying to show that the point of the Christian story is that God is trying to reunite a fragmented universe under the headship of Jesus of Nazareth. 
That's what he's saying. In other words, what we are suffering from is a great disintegration of, of, of creation, of ourselves, of even our own psyches, to where even Shakespeare would look and say that the times are out of joint, right? Things are not as they should be. But God has introduced an event that is so major, so earth-shattering, so foundational to your personality and to the world around you that nothing you can do from here on out will be the same. That's what he's saying. (laughs) Everything that we have to do has to be oriented around that great fact. And the metaphor that he uses right there in verse verse 17 is that you're not supposed to walk. What's he saying? As you go along your way, as you are living your life, you're going to have to bring into alignment with this massive event everything else. It's all going to have to line up. Look, y'all, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. At the very heart of Christianity's message is an idea that's supposed to get down to the most fundamental level of your existence and effect a transformation at the, the very core of what motivates you. And it does so so that it will work out in a total transformation of everything in your life. That's the point of the whole book of Ephesians, right? And so what I want to try to uh, suggest to you that there are three ideas that we have to grasp in order to understand this uh, transformation. You have to see, first of all, where you came from or what you were. You have to see, secondly, what it is that you have become. And then thirdly, you have to see what it is that you are becoming. Does that make sense? What you were in the past, what you have become in the present, and what you are becoming in the future. That's the second half of Ephesians chapter 4. Let's dive into it. Okay, number one, what we were. Well, Paul says very simply that as Christians, you're not supposed to walk like you used to. And what he does is he uses the word Gentile to describe that particular existence. Now look, notice what he says here because there's some really, (laughs) there's some patently offensive things here if you're paying attention. He says, first of all, you'll notice that prior to your coming and understanding what Jesus is about, you walked in something called futility. Your life was marked by futility. In other words, Paul is saying that your life was pointless. It was drab. Uh, It was gray to anyone whose understanding is still darkened. But here's what's interesting. When you look at the cause of that darkness, did you read what it said there? This is actually worth pointing out in verse 18. They, the Gentiles, and you, of course, before you became a Christian, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Look at the last phrase there. Due to their hardness of heart. Went right past you, didn't it? You didn't see how offensive that was. Look. What Paul is saying is the reason why people are struggling with futility in life is not because they don't have enough information. It's because there's something in their heart that is shaping what they will and will not consider as information. This is the way Sinclair Ferguson put this. And again, I've borrowed heavily this semester from Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, intellectual futility is rooted not in the hiddenness of God's truth. Not in the fact that we can't see what's going on, but in the hardness of the human heart. (laughs) In other words, the Bible is saying that for all of the intellectual objections that people have to God, it's not an intellectual problem. 
You know what it is? It's a heart problem. It is a part, is a problem that is rooted at the core of your commitments. It's rooted at the core of the things that energize you the most deeply. So that in the end, here's Ferguson again, intellectual rejection of God is a mode of the human heart's attempt to keep God at a convenient distance. (laughs) Now look, some of you have unbelieving friends. Some of you here tonight are very likely very skeptical of what you've heard about Christianity this semester from Ephesians. That's okay. You're in the right place. But the Bible is setting something in front of you that I think is really challenging because it's saying to yourself, is this really about an intellectual issue? Is this really about an issue in your mind? Because if you really begin to think about it, every person who reasons at all, including the all-objective, all-knowing scientist in our day, they reason on the basis of foundations. In other words, there are things that they are committed to, which I would point out cannot necessarily be proved. Taking sort of philosophy of science at its basic level think of ideas like the uniformity of nature why is it that I assume as a scientist if I'm a scientist that tomorrow is going to be like it was today well here's the thing you cannot prove that it is an assumption that a scientist makes on the basis of the things that he sees around him that he commits himself to first and foremost how about the reliability of sense perception The idea that my eyes are actually telling me truth, that my thoughts are actually thinking reality. (laughs) The mere idea of objectivity upon which all of science is based is an assumption that we are committed to, but you can't prove it. The Bible's way of putting that is it comes by faith. And so here's what the Bible says. The Bible's saying our problems with God are not because he's not given us enough information. Our problems with God is the fact that we don't like him. In other words, we don't want for there to be a God. And so what we do is we build up an intellectual anti-God bias. And we filter all the information through that bias so that it fits our own pre-committed notions. It's due to the hardness of your heart. Futility comes from being darkened in one's heart, Paul says. That is radical (laughs) for those people who are trying to assume the objectivity. Okay, but that's the first one. That's where it starts. It starts in sort of commitments of the heart to look and be committed to your own sort of uh, independence from God. But the second thing that he says is that the net result of that is that it results in in a life that is out of control. An out of control life. Look at verse 19. Paul looks and says, now you've become callous. So much so that you've become greedy for impurity. Now, that's kind of an interesting way to talk. What is Paul talking about? Well, I would submit to you that Paul is talking the language of addiction. Look what it says there in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Isn't that a funny way of talking? I'm going to give myself up. How do I do that? How do I give myself up, right? In other words, he's saying that someone has let go control of their own life and allowed the thing to control them. You see what he's saying? The net result of the futility of heart that these Gentiles experience is the fact that there's a life that is completely out of control and that you are addicted to. Look, y'all. And then he goes on to talk about all kinds of situations in life, uh, especially when it comes to sexuality. <laughs> Look, do I, need to, do I need to like do a lecture on this? 
Yours is a unique generation, sexually speaking. You do know this. Yours is the first, as the sociologists describe it, to be the porn culture. You were raised on it. If the statistics are accurate, gentlemen, you had your first experience with pornography at age 11. That's what the statistics are showing. The average age when someone first encounters that. Do I really need to like give an illustration to you to prove to you, gentlemen, the power of looking at something and saying, I really don't want to do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's what Paul calls the language of addiction. In other words, it's not you doing the thing. It's the thing that has me. I'm not in possession of this anymore. Something has taken over. I don't feel like I'm making the choices anymore. And Paul says that's exactly what it's like. That's exactly what it's like to live in the futility of mind and the hardness of heart that that comes with it. And to be honest with you, ladies, don't get all high and mighty as you look down on the guys. To be honest with you, yours is a generation who has, for the first time in history, looked at this little 14-year-old boy conception of what a woman ought to be, a.k.a. a porn star, and said, okay, back in the 60s, at least ladies got mad about it. And they sort of started, you know, they got mad at pornography because they were like, how dare you objectify us? You, on the other hand, have looked and said, that's what you want? Great. And we suddenly have held it up as a hero, ladies. Ought to be a little more anger in the midst of us. Look, I'm simply saying this. This is addiction. (laughs) It's addiction. And it goes down to get, it gets to the level of the commitments of your heart. And Paul says, that is what you were. Sound familiar? Okay, what you were is point number one. Point number two in the outline is what you have become. Look, y'all, so the question you ought to be asking is, well, how do you break that addiction? Does God give a remedy for it? Yes. Look what he says there in verse 20. What a weird way of talking. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Sinclair uh, Ferguson makes a great point that that's a very weirdly worded uh, uh, sentence in Greek and in English, for that matter. It's actually bad English because the verb to learn does not typically take a subject that is a personal name, Right? What does he mean? What he's saying is is that becoming a Christian is not simply learning about Jesus, that he did some things. Becoming a Christian is learning him. Learning him. In other words, coming into such a communion and such a fellowship that he begins to imprint himself on everything that you are and every aspect of your being. So how does that happen? How does it happen? Because for many of you, you've been presented with this. You know this. I know less. Jesus is supposed to be that important to me. How does it happen? Well, Paul gives it there in verse 22 through 24. What does he say? He says, we put off an old man and we put on a new man. Now, look, I'll be honest with you. (laughs) You need to put on the new man. That sounds like the kind of religious gobbledygook that I grew up with. It's extremely off-putting. What in the world does that mean? Um, let 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 me just put it flat out. Paul is saying... That what we have become in Christ is something that is really can only be described as a new identity. We have taken on a brand new identity. That's this old man, new man. So that so much we can say is that you are no longer the person that you used to be in the things that define you. Now you're saying to yourself, uh, all right, I don't understand that either because I kind of feel like sometimes I'm the exact same person I used to be. How does that work? Okay, think about this for a second. When the Bible talks about you having an identity change, it's talking about two things. Number one, the Bible is talking about an identity change that redefines your history. This is huge. Bear with me for a second. 
When a person comes to Christ, there is a brand new way of looking what is behind them, looking at what is behind them. In other words, right now, you have experiences in your past that you have a certain translation for. Let's say a couple of years ago, your girlfriend, gentlemen, broke up with you. That has a meaning to you. You may think to yourself tonight that it means that she was just crazy and I'm better off without her. You may look and say, she rejected me and therefore I'm worthless and totally insecure now. In other words, events in your past mean stuff to you. Does that make sense? They have, a, they have an interpretation. Here's the deal. To come to Christ means that you look back at your personal history and say, that's not what those things mean. They mean something fundamentally different now. Those were not random events. My parents that did not love me in the way in which they did, my father who was married to his job and not to my mother, that abuse that I experienced by that family member when I was a child, that doesn't mean what I thought it meant. What it was, was God placing his fingerprints on all of my life to lead me to where I am today. Have you ever had that experience where you're looking around and you suddenly hear a sermon, a Bible study, you're reading scripture, you're praying, and you suddenly think to yourself, wait a minute, I think God is all up in this. It almost feels like he's like putting these people into my life and, and making me think these thoughts and I'm, these ideas are just popping in my head. Does that make sense? To reinterpret your past, what happened to you? To do it around the gospel is step one to an identity shift, okay? That's step one. Step two is just as profound. What is step two? Step two of learning Christ means that now, having redefined my past, something else now defines me. Look, y'all, and, and Paul goes to this imagery there in verse 24 of talking about oftentimes... No, he doesn't. That's not where that comes. Paul looks when he talks about putting on the old man and the new man in Romans chapter 6 by using this image of baptism. That the way in which the old man and the new man are put on and taken off comes and is pictured for us in the religious rite of baptism. What's he saying? What he's saying is, is I now have a brand new defining characteristic of my life. There is something that used to define me. It used to be my popularity, for instance. It used to be my boyfriend slash girlfriend. Uh, it used to be my family pedigree, the fact that I've got these wonderful parents and this perfect family. It used to be my athletic ability. Do you hear about my, do you see my paper clippings from high school? <laughs> it used to be about my physical beauty. In other words, you are constantly looking to something and saying, this is the defining characteristic of my life. To have an identity change, that gets traded with Jesus. He is the only one who can tell me who I am. Because I know who I am. Because he tells me. Doesn't come from myself, doesn't come from my deeds, doesn't come from anything, it comes from me. Hey, by the way, speaking of baptism, this is one of the reasons why for a lot of you in your uh, sorority and fraternity um, initiation rites, and please don't gasp that, oh, how does he know about that, please? Um, for a lot of you, you have baptism rites. You ever thought about this? There's some baptism rites that are oftentimes associated with a lot of your initiation ritual. Why? Because it's, that, it's, it's your Greek house's way of saying to you, 
We want to be the defining characteristic of your life. We want to take on a level of being a major source in your life. And I know you're thinking to yourself, oh, Les, what a superficial reading. Really? A number of uh, years ago, a very good friend of mine was at a missions conference, no less, and speaking to um, uh, 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 some people as they left the church after they gave a presentation about RUF. And an elderly woman, probably in her 70s, approached uh, my friend who had gone to Ole Miss. I'm going to use names here. I'm calling out names. She walked up to her and she was like, well, now where did you go to school? And she said, well, I went to Ole Miss. And 70 some odd years old, this woman gasped and was like, oh, that is so wonderful. Were you a Cayo or a Tri-Delt? Because there are no other sororities at Ole Miss, right? Are those the only two? DGs? FIMUs? Those are the only ones here, right? Now look, you're looking and going, hey, it's a crazy, batty old woman. Is it? Is it? Is there not a way in which our lives, especially in college, can be defined by these creeping things that are approaching into my life and saying, hey, center yourself on me. Let this be the thing that marks you out as the man you are. Let this relationship be the one thing that centers you as a person, young lady. It's constantly calling us pulling us away. And Paul looks and says, that is not how you learned Christ. Christ is the one thing. Jesus is the only one who can tell me who I am. That's what it means to take off the old man and to put on the new man. And Paul looks and says, this is what's going to define you. It's going to be the thing that marks out your life. Now, the last question is this, how can you know if that has happened? How do I know if I've been trading the old man for the new man, Les? We've looked at what happened in the past, what we were. We've seen what we've become with this brand new identity. What is this supposed to make us be becoming? He said in terrible English. Anyway, verse 25 through 32 are a great list. And to be honest with you, each one probably deserves a sermon in itself. I won't do that to you. Let's just run through these. Paul looks and says, you can tell the identity transformation because of five things. Number one. You're going to begin to to replace falsehood with truth. Falsehood is replaced by truth. I find it interesting that as soon as Paul starts talking about transformation, what does he go to? He goes to what you say. (laughs) Look out, y'all. Your words are the first place where this transformation is supposed to be taking place. Um, What kind of things come out of your mouth? Ask a friend. They're a better judge than you are. We have a very interesting way of sort of filtering stuff that comes out of here and into here. Ask a friend. Falsehood replaced by truth. Number two, anger replaced by control. Paul says that any anger that you cannot put to bed at night is controlling you. It is a rampant passion, not a grace. Now granted, Jesus acknowledged the fact that it's possible to be angry and not to sin, encourages us to do so. Be angry, but in your anger do not sin. But what Paul is saying is, the question is, is can you live with yourself when you're angry? (laughs) If you haven't faced this yet, it's coming, I promise you. Can you live with yourself when you're angry? Because if you cannot, if your rage towards your parents is such that it literally You can't live with yourself in the midst of it. Guess what? It's controlling you. And Paul says there's a release from anger. There's an ability to look and let those kinds of things go. He's going to get to it in just a second. Thirdly, theft is replaced by liberality. 
Theft replaced by liberality. It's funny. He not only starts to go after your words, first of all, but then he starts to go after your money. Woo. In other words, he looks and says, I want you to understand that your possessions and what you give away is the surest measure of your heart. You know, Les, I've been struggling with this. Where is my heart? What is, what's really going on with me? There's a very simple answer to that. Look at your checkbook. Track your spending for a month. See where it goes. Because that will be, in some ways, a measure of your heart. Your treasure will always follow where your heart is. So Paul looks and says, as you can tell when this has happened, because you will all of a sudden trade that theft where you're holding back from people with a liberality. Sure, what do you need? Holding our possessions like this instead of like this with a clenched fist. Uh, Fourthly, falsehood replaced by truth, anger replaced by control, theft replaced by liberality. And fourthly, corrupting talk is replaced by blessing talk. Look, Paul is looking and saying, hey, we're going back to another speaking thing. He's kind of fixed on this. Look, y'all, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Let nothing unwholesome come out of your mouth there in verse 29. What does that mean? What it means is it's the kind of talk that is not used for building other people up. Did you catch that? Let no unwholesome, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for other people. Hey, when was the last time you sat down and thought to yourself, you know what, I've got a friend, and I actually care about that friend. And I'm going to do something that rarely gets done. I am going to go and grab a collection of words. And I'm going to give these words to my friend as a sacrifice to them to let them know how much I care about them. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, my friends know that I care about them. I'll bet you they don't. And gentlemen, look, gentlemen, let's be honest. We, we are so bad at this, and it's amazing to sort of see how oftentimes even friendships are people that you think you care a lot about. Your friendship is carried on the weight of sarcasm. We speak with unbelievable cruelty to each other, right? When, when was the last time you could say something complimentary about one of your friends Without having, to, without having to preface it with, you know, I ain't gay or nothing. <laughs> it's funnier than that. Will Nettleton stole that joke from me. I just want to go on record for that. You know, I ain't gay or nothing, but, uh, you know, I kind of like you. Come on, guys. Is that the best that we can do? Is there no way in which there's a way to provide encouragement for someone? Paul looks and goes, if that is so awkward for you, We've got to look and see where this transformation has come from. That's the fourth thing. Fifth thing, and finally, animosity is replaced by kindness. Paul uses that word bitterness there, and that's a very helpful image. We all know what it's like to get something bitter in our mouth. (laughs) Want to spit it out? Look, y'all, it is just as noticeable in your soul. Bitterness in your mouth, you can't avoid it, can you? You do this all the time. Bitterness in your soul, people know. They see it. It's around your, it's in the air that you breathe. Look, y'all, Paul is saying that when you discover Christ, what you're going to start doing is, is you're going to start to search for the kind way through. And you're faced with life situations, you're going to look and say, where can I find kindness? And you want to know why you're going to do it? I love the way he sums this up. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And how do you do that? (laughs) How do you forgive somebody? 
Paul answers it in the last few words there. As God in Christ forgave you. See what he's doing? He starts and ends with the same proposition. He's saying, look, there is something so major that has happened to you. God has forgiven you. He's forgiven you. (laughs) Even you. How can we withhold forgiveness from somebody else? The wounds that people inflict against me are petty compared to the wounds that I inflict against him every single day. And yet he is a God who delights in showing mercy. Should we not be the same? St. Augustine, after his conversion from a very licentious, oversexed lifestyle, was walking down the street and happened to pass upon one of his old lovers. And as they passed by, Augustine simply nodded cordially and walked right past her. And of course, the young lady was absolutely offended. She stops and put her hands on her hips, I imagine, and says, Augustine, it is I. Augustine turns around and looks at her and says, yes, I know, but it is not I. You go, that's fair to say. As a Christian, there is a brand new me that God begins to create in you. A brand new way of reorienting everything in your life. I'm not saying it's not a struggle, but I'm saying it's absolutely inevitable. And our responsibility is to go back to the touchstone of God's forgiveness to ask, how is it transforming me? I dare you to start asking that question. And as always, consider it an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, to be honest with you, we are oftentimes dreadfully convicted when we begin to consider the fact that you have called us into transformation That part of your business of healing the world of the sickness of sin is by changing us and causing us to be agents of peace instead of agents of discord. And so we thank you for the clarity of your servant Paul. We thank you that you freed us from the futility of our hearts due to uh, false understanding. We thank you that you have come and given us an identity transformation, a new us that we're supposed to be putting on and taking off the old man. And that finally there ought to be a distinction in the way we talk to each other, in the way in which we speak, in the way in which we use our money, in the way in which we react to the circumstances around us. And so your instruction cuts deeply in us. And so we're asking once again that by your spirit you would bring home to our hearts the gospel. Melt the hardness of our hearts, the anger in our hearts. Oh, Lord Jesus, melt it with what you have done for us. And maybe, just maybe, in a small little corner of the campus of Old Miss, there might be the beginnings of something that would change everything here. We don't want to pray for anything less because we know that you're at work as it happens. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.